Welcome to Edgemont Bible Church in Fairview Heights, Illinois, where our mission is to glorify God by guiding people into a discipleship relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's listen in to today's message. I am so glad you have a railing to come up these stairs. I had a church a while back that had just three steps and I tripped on the top one and went flat down. <laughs> but that was right before I preached, and so uh, God apparently wanted to keep me humble and was very successful. Uh, but anyway, and God was good anyway. He always is, right? And uh, I was talking last night to a couple that I met in the lobby. Turns out that they... We're from Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which is about 30 miles from where I grew up. And uh, they were actually friends with my sister and went to my sister's church. And it was just kind of amazing to me. And uh, there was another couple that was kind of listening in. And and uh, the husband had tattooed, or the wife had tattooed on her, on her arm, God is good. And her husband had tattooed on his arm, all the time God is good. I thought, well, you know, that's kind of an interesting way to be able to do that. Uh, it can, I'm sure it can strike up some conversations. Uh, I don't have any of those tattoos, but I still think God is good. And I don't have to have a tattoo for you to be able to know that. As Pastor was talking about what was going on in Turkey, and you look at the earthquakes and everything, uh, I've been reading about the book of Ezekiel and uh, Ezekiel chapter 38, 39. You find the Soviet Union and the Arab countries are going to be, the Muslim countries are going to be going against Israel in the last days. And God is going to come with an earthquake. And it's going to be a huge earthquake. It's going to destroy all but one sixteenth of their armies. You talk about an earthquake. It says the seas are even going to be upset about it over there. And I'm sure the Mediterranean is going to be pretty rocky during that time. But it just reminds you, Jesus is coming. This is a precursor. 15,000 that are dead with this, this, that's nothing compared to what's going to happen. And it's just, it's amazing to me. And it's wonderful because God is on the throne. And even when you see all the different things that are happening, sometimes you get discouraged. You say, Lord, what's happening? You know, what's going to happen for my kids? What's going to happen for my grandkids? What's going to happen to their kids? And I just know this. We do what we can where we're at here and try to reach everybody we can because it's the gospel of Christ that changes people's lives. It really took on significance to me last spring. Uh, we have a two-year-old granddaughter. Her name is Memphis Blue. They took the first initial of every one of the grandparents and every one of the great-grandparents and said, we're going to make a name out of it. And the name that came out is Memphis Blue. And she's a little girl with a huge personality that absolutely fits her name. In fact, yesterday morning I was, yeah, I guess it was yesterday morning I was over there, and they have this little toy poodle that weighs less than three pounds. It's smaller than a cat. And I said to her, is Bender my sweetie pie? She said, Memphis. <laughs> and I love it. I love it when she says Memphis. It's so sweet. 
And uh, yeah, she doesn't want anybody to be her sweetie, uh, anybody to be my sweetie pie except Memphis. So uh, it works out really well. But you know, last spring I was sitting with on the porch swing with her. We have a porch swing. In fact, my grandson, who is 19, her older brother, and she is two now, she also has an 11-year-old brother. Their brothers just adore her, and she adores her brothers. I was sitting on that porch swing, and that's where Logan first called me Papa when he was seven months old. We don't have the same frame for it anymore. We have it hung from the roof of our porch. And I was sitting on there swinging with her and singing different songs to her. And I started singing the song, Seek Ye First the Kingdom of God. And all of a sudden it hit me. In June of last year, I had my 50th birthday in the Lord. And I can still remember, I was in California. I was on my way to California. I got saved in Dallas, Texas. And I can still remember learning that song, Seek Ye First the Kingdom of God. And I said, you know, it's been 50 years ago that I learned that song. And it was just kind of amazing to me that I've been saved for 50 years. And I thought about it. I look back over those 50 years, and, and I sang that song. You know, I'd just gotten saved. I was newly saved. I had no idea what was going to go on with my life. I had no idea what God was going to do. I had no idea what God was going to call me to. I just knew this. I grew up in a church. It was not real clear on the gospel. I said, Lord, if I ever have a chance to speak, I want to make sure I make the gospel clear. Because I want people to understand it. I don't want them to grow up like I did. I laid in bed night after night and cried myself to sleep asking Jesus to come into my heart. Well, you know what? It says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. If somebody would have just told me all I needed to do is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that I had to be saved, it would have probably happened. Because my heart was just searching. But as a result... I just kind of grew away because I kept praying and crying night after night and nothing ever happened. And I said, okay, well, there must not be anything to it. And then when I was 22 years old, I trusted Christ as my Savior. And boy, what a change. But I sang that song, Seek Ye First the Kingdom of God. I said, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do with me. I don't know what's in my head for me for my life. I don't know what kind of work I'm going to do. I'd like to have a family someday, Lord. I'd like to have a wife. I'd like to have kids. I'd like to have grandkids. I'd like to have all these things, Lord. But I don't know what's going to happen. So here's what I'm going to do, Lord. I'm going to seek you first. And all these things shall be added unto me. And I determined in my heart that I would seek God first of all. You know, I was, I was really rebellious when I got saved. I was in terrible rebellion. And, you know, God just worked in a very unusual way. I started going to a Bible study in Chicago. It was taught by a former New Tribes missionary. Her husband worked nights as a printer. Her son was my age. And when Rich was my age, or when Rich was in junior high, he'd have his friends over on Friday night and they'd play games. And they found out that Lois had been a missionary. And they started asking Bible questions. That was when Rich was in junior high. And then all the way through high school and college, she was teaching this Bible study every Wednesday night at their house in their basement. And when I started coming in 1972, 
I was 22 years old. Rich was too. There were between 80 and 100 high school and college-age students in the basement of that house listening to the Bible being taught verse by verse for an hour. When Lois died, one of my friends took count. There were 400 people that were in full-time Christian ministry that came out of that Bible study in Chicago. That's where I preached my first sermon. I was at that Bible study, and there was a new guy who had just gotten saved, and he told me, boy, he said, yeah, it's exciting. He said, I, I, I got saved on Wednesday night, and on Thursday and I had read the book of Romans, and Friday night I had four of my friends over, and he said, the Holy Spirit just led me, and he said, I remembered stuff that I read that I can't believe I remembered. He said, would you teach a Bible study at my house? And so I started teaching the book of Romans. Every Monday night I taught the book of Romans verse by verse at his house. And that was how God just trained me in Bible doctrine and taught me. And he led me in a very unusual way. You know, I'm, I'm one of those pastors who never went to Bible college and never went to seminary. But I taught at Dayspring Bible College at least one semester every year for 32 years. Do you think I didn't get a Bible education? Listen, I got a Bible education. I mean, when I started pastoring a church in Villa Park, I pastored the church, Bible Church of Villa Park, I taught Sunday school on Sunday morning, preached Sunday morning, preached Sunday night, preached Wednesday night, and taught systematic theology two hours a week at the Bible college. I was studying all the time. I never dreamt when I sang that song 50 years ago that 50 years later I would be sitting with my sweet little granddaughter singing, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I never dreamt I'd be doing that. But God added all these things to me. You know, you can look, you look and you say, well, that's easy for you to say. I mean, look, most of your days are behind you already. Yeah, they are. Most of my life is behind me. I have a lot more days behind me than ahead of me. And that's okay. I'm all right with that. Because I know where I'm going. And I know what I'm doing. And I know the purpose for life. And I know why I'm living. And I know what God has called me to do. And so my goal was just, Lord, I just want to know what what it is you want me to do. But I had no idea. I'm going to this Bible school, Bible class in Chicago. I'm teaching a Bible class in Chicago. and But I had no idea. I had friends that were going into ministry. I had friends that were going to New Tribes missions. I had friends that were going to seminary. But no, I didn't. But God had a different path for me. You know, the wonderful thing is this. God doesn't have a set pattern where everybody's going to live the same. He works in every one of our lives in a different way, doesn't he? In my life, I needed to have the practical Christian living in order to teach me what the Word of God had to say. And God put me there. When I was called as pastor of the church in Villa Park in 1983, I had never pastored a church. I just knew this. I was an associate pastor at the church. I was doing administrative work at the church 
And I had a friend who was pastoring the church. The church had just had a huge split, and he felt like he couldn't be effective there anymore. So he resigned, and he recommended to the board that they ask me to candidate. Okay, I mean, it was 11 years after I got saved. I'd learned a lot of Bible since then, but I had never been a pastor. I said, Lord, how am I going to do this? I don't know how to be a pastor. I said, well, Lord, here's the deal. Bob, if you're going to, if you're going to candidate, you're going to have to be willing to do it. I said, okay, Lord, I'm willing to candidate. And I'm willing to be the pastor because I'm going to have to trust you to lead because I don't know what to do. And so God called me to pastor the church. I pastored there for about 11 and a half years. We went from an average of 20 people on Sunday morning to an average of 80 to 90 people every Sunday morning. We went from an average of 15 people on a big Sunday night to 60, 70 to 80 people every Sunday night. We went from a, from a high of six on Wednesday nights to an average of 60 to 70 every Wednesday night. I learned how to pastor while I was being a pastor. And one of the things that I really learned is if you're going to be effective as a pastor, you better love your people. In 1993, or I think it was 1992, I had this man called Reverend Norman Schneller come to my church on a Sunday night and talk about how he lobbied the legislature in Illinois for churches. I thought, well, that would be interesting to do. And then I put it out of my mind because I knew God had called me to pastor a church. In February of 1993, a friend of mine called me and said, hey, I've been asked to open the Senate in prayer you want to come? Why don't you come on down with me? So we went down to Springfield, and as we walked in the back door of the Senate for him to open the Senate in prayer, I saw Reverend Schneller talking to my senator and his senator, and my senator turned to me, and he said, boy, this guy really knows the ropes. My friend opened the Senate in prayer. We went out to eat, and I said, you know, Reverend Schneller has been in and out of the hospital every year for the last 10 years. Who's going to take his place when he's gone? He said, Bob, I think you're the guy. <laughs> I said, oh, not me. He said, name somebody. So I started naming people. He said, no, they can't do it because of this. They can't do it because of that. I said, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll pray about it. That was on Thursday. Sunday night, I called my friend and said, you call Reverend Schneller and tell him I'd be willing to go with him to Springfield. On Monday, he called me back. He said, I called Reverend Schneller and told him you'd be willing to go to Springfield. He said, I told that boy God called him to preach. I said, okay, Lord, that's fine. I'm just, I'm willing to do what you want me to do. Two weeks later, it was the week of the ACE convention. I was scheduled to go to the ACE convention, and Reverend Schneller called me on Monday morning. He said, could you lobby with, me, lobby with me on Tuesday and Wednesday at the Capitol? You know what? I'd prayed about it already. God had told me, yes, Bob. I said, okay, I can. I canceled my, my, my reservations in, in Macomb, and off I went to Springfield. I lobbied Wednesday, th- went through Tuesday, and then Wednesday afternoon, we're walking up the steps between the third and the fourth floor, right by the House of Representatives. There's a landing there on those marble stairs, And he turned to me and he said, would you be willing to be my associate? 
I said, yes. Now, in the back of my mind, I'm going, but Lord, I don't know anything about lobbying. I don't know how to lobby. He said, well, Bob, you didn't know how to be a pastor either. Okay. Well, Lord, if you could lead me and teach me how to pastor, you can lead me and teach me how to lobby. The following week, I went back with him to Springfield for five days. We're driving back from Chicago, and he said, now on Monday, I'm leaving for Florida. There's a gay rights bill in the House Judiciary Committee on Wednesday, and I want you to testify against it. Okay. And so I jumped in with both feet. He went to Florida. On his way back from Florida, he stopped in Atlanta to help roof his son's garage, and he broke out with bruises all over his body. He had leukemia. He lobbied with me for three more days. But those seven days he spent with me, he introduced me to legislators and key legislators. They said, hey, you can work out of my office. I'd say, what do I do next? He'd say, well, this is what you need to do next. What do I need to do next? And so I had guys that were in leadership in the House of Representatives telling me what I needed to do next in lobbying. God showed me what to do. And then you know what happened? There's a bill that affected churches and pastors, and the homeschoolers got a hold of it. And they were ringing the phones off the hook in Springfield. I'm this brand new guy who didn't know anybody in the state of Illinois, and I'm lobbying. I'm the only guy lobbying against this bill. And the 800 telephone calls on one floor in the Senate in one week. And people are saying, man, this guy's got a lot of influence. You know what? In politics, perception becomes reality. And so I later had a Republican legislator who had been in leadership say, Reverend Bob, you are the conscience of the Republican Party. She says, you don't even have to say anything to anybody. You walk down the hall and you are the conscience of the Republican Party. You know what? I never asked for that. I never looked for that. All I just said is, Lord, you're going to have to help me because I don't know what to do. And then I just worked like crazy. I remember the last day Reverend Schneller was with me at the Capitol there. We were up on the second floor, or floor one and a half of the Democratic senators. And he turned to me and he said, Bob, he said, you got to use the term Reverend with your name because most of these people are Catholic and they'll respect that. He said, the other thing, he said, you're going to have to learn to love them. He said, you will never be effective with the legislators if you don't love them. He was absolutely right. It wasn't any different than pastoring because pastoring I had to learn to love everybody too. And now I've had to learn to love some unlovely people. How many of you ever had somebody in your life that... Um, was sandpaper. Every time they came up against you and rubbed you, it hurt. <laughs> well, you know, in the legislature that happens sometimes. And there are, and one of the things I have learned over the years is in order to be really able to love some of these people, you've got to pray a lot more for some people than others. And God finds a way to open up doors where you can have a relationship with people that 
don't agree with you on anything. Without love, life is full of criticism. The Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins. If you really love somebody, their faults won't become the primary thing you look at in their life. Who are the people you criticize most? I hope it's not the people you love the most. It's people you don't love. Oh, what a jerk. You know, it's really easy to say that about somebody, right? But the reality of it is, we all know how to be jerks in our own way, don't we? Still remember a friend of mine, he had a Volkswagen. He was trying to get the back seat. He was trying to get the back seat to fold down. And he was having trouble with it. And another friend crawled in there and he just gave it a big, he said, he, t- he took a big yank and he said, it takes a big jerk to way they get these seats to move. Well, he got him to move. <laughs> and we all laughed about it later on. But the reality of it is, you know, we all know how to be big jerks. And we are all capable of doing it, aren't we? There's not a one who's not capable. Don't tell me you don't have a sin nature. Because you do. In John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus said this. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another... As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. I read a story about an English pastor who, uh, they were going to have a, Bible, a prayer meeting, a prayer service together with a bunch of pastors. And a pastor that was from a little bit more liberal denomination said, well, he said, I'd like to join you for that prayer service. And he just kind of wanted to rule him out. And he said, well, how many commandments are there in the Bible? He said, 11. He said, 11? He said, yeah. He said, Jesus said, you've got the Ten Commandments. Now a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And he said, I felt so ashamed. And sometimes we all need to be ashamed. Jesus asked a certain lawyer, teacher of the law, and the scribe stood up, and Jesus talked to him, and he said, "What do I have to do to inherit eternal eternal life and eternal life?" And Jesus said, "What does the law say?" He said, "Well, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself." Well, what happens when you love somebody with all your heart? Don't tell me you fell in love and didn't tell a soul about it, right? How many of you fell in love and told somebody about it? Come on, let's see your hands. Honestly, yeah, see? I know. Why? You loved them. You had to talk about them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. You know, there's nobody that compared to Jesus. Nobody. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Then love the Lord your God with all your soul. You know, love the Lord your God with all your strength. Well, I loved it. We had a church camp for years. And whenever there was a real physical task to do, I was the guy who they went to. Hey, you know, the cabin in this 
the septic in this cabin needs to be replaced. Hey, I was the guy that got the hole dug and got the new septic system in and had it all set and setting up and got it all filled up and got it done within a matter of two days. You know, we just did it. But I love to do things that used my strength. When I was young, I really enjoyed it even more than I do now. Now I ache a little bit more when I do that. <laughs> and then love the, love the Lord with all your mind. C.S. Lewis wasn't always a Christian, was he? At one time, C.S. Lewis was an unbeliever, and C.S. Lewis started studying archaeology because he wanted to prove that the Bible was not true. And instead, he became a Christian. One of the things that really hit me is after I got saved, there were so many things I didn't understand. And I would have verses that I didn't understand. And I had a, a notebook that I kept writing these verses down that I didn't understand. I said, Lord, I don't understand this. You're going to have to show me somewhere down the road what this verse means. And over the years, God has given me answers to most of those verses. But it's just kind of an amazing thing because I was reading the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. And I was sitting in a, in a kitchen at, at the Bible study at the lady's house. And, and I was sitting in, in the, in the, at, the, at the table with a young man who... He said, well, I just don't believe the Bible. I said, here. I said, I'll tell you what, I've got this book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He said, I, you know, he said, I'd really like to read that. I said, I'll tell you what, i got a copy in my car. I'll get it out of there for you and give it to you, and you can come back next week, and we'll talk about it. The next week, to my amazement, he showed up with my book. I said, how'd you like it? He said, I didn't like it. He said, I didn't like what it had to say. He said, so I stopped reading it. He didn't want to know what the truth was. Josh McDowell says in his book that most of the time when he has a debate with somebody who they, they, they absolutely will not accept the Bible, the reason they don't want to accept the Bible is there's something in their lives they, they're afraid they're going to have to give up. Don't let anything in this world stop you from Jesus Christ. You know, this world's not going to last that long. It was only a short time ago that I was 22. And now I'm a little older. It's been 50 years since, since 22. In 2017, I went back and celebrated my 50th high school class reunion. Hi, yi, yi. I thought only old people did that. <laughs> you know what's amazing to me? We had a class of 127 people, and only three of them had died. It's amazing. We had, I think we had 56 people there, which was pretty good because they came from all over the United States. Jim Elliott was one of the missionaries who was killed by the Alka Indians. Most of us know the story. It was back in the 1950s. Nate Saint was flying the plane and they'd fly over the Alka Indians every day because they wanted to be able to minister to the Alka Indians. And they would drop gifts on the riverbank for the Indians. And every day when the Indians would come over, they'd get their gifts and everything. And they finally felt it was time for them to go down and land. I still remember the head headlines of the Sioux City Journal. 
Four missionaries killed by Alka Indians. I remember seeing a picture of the plane sitting on the sand on that beach. To most of us, we'd say, well, that's the end of the story. But you know, their wives all said, you know what? We need to reach these Alka Indians. I had a friend who went to Bible college in Florida with the son of the Alka Indian who killed Jim Elliott. And he was going to Bible college to learn to be a pastor to the church that the Alka Indians had. Why? Their wives all said, you know what? They went and with a purpose of reaching the Alka Indians, we have that same purpose And so they went on and continued on with the work. And God blessed. But Nate Saint wrote this in his diary shortly before he died. He he said he wrote this. He is no fool to give that which he cannot keep, to get that which he cannot lose. They were willing to lay down their lives for other people to hear the gospel. We aren't willing to cross the road sometimes. Shame on us. We need to learn to love the way Jesus loved. What did Jesus say? A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. What did he do? He was willing to lay down his life for us. We need, he said, love other people like I love you. Be willing to lay down your life for others. You know, sometimes, sometimes laying down your life doesn't mean dying. It means living for Christ on the earth. I love the passage, you know, I grew up on a farm. I understand how this works. Except a kernel of wheat fall in the ground and die, it cannot bear fruit. We had the old corn planters back in the old days, and they used the plates, and Dad would put a plate in his corn planter that made sure that there were at least three or four kernels of corn in every hill. I said, why'd you put that many in every hill? He said, well, Bob, he said... One of them's for the squirrels, one of them's for the rootworm, and the other one's to grow. But I remember on years when we didn't have a lot of rain, Dad would go out after about three or four days. He'd go out and go down the row, down that corn row, and he'd scratch down that corn row, and he'd find the kernels of corn. And he was just thrilled when he saw a kernel of corn rotting away because it had a little sprout coming up out of it and had a root going down. And that's us. If we're going to live for Christ, we're going to have to get our roots down and we're going to have to grow. And we can bear fruit. That's what we're here for. What good is an apple tree that doesn't produce apples? We had two apple trees right in the middle of the garden when I was growing up. 
they were pretty mature trees by the time we moved on that farm. One of them just grew. I mean, they had just loaded with apples. The other one, our best year, we had three apples. And boy, they were red, and they were beautiful, and they were delicious. Then we had a big storm, and lightning struck that apple tree, and half of it went down. And next year, that apple tree was loaded with apples. Because you see, it had all these sucker roots growing out of it, and all these sucker branches growing out of it, and when these sucker branches were all growing out of it, they took all of the nutrition and didn't bear any fruit. We have to be careful in our own lives, too, that we don't let the sucker branches just suck everything out of us so that we don't live our lives for the reason we're really here for. And so sometimes it takes pruning, doesn't it? Now, sometimes when God starts pruning in our lives, it's painful. But he does it so we can bear fruit. We got married in 1976. In 1978, my wife was pregnant. I remember on, in May we went, she was about five months pregnant, we, May we went and went out to Iowa and visited my family. And You know, it's this time you're really looking forward to it and you say, boy, I can't wait. And you know what? On June 20th that year of 1978, my wife woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning and she said, Bob, I think I'm in labor. I said, honey, you can't be in labor. You're not due for another three months yet. She said, I'm sure I'm in labor. We were half a mile from the hospital. We went to the hospital and the doctor looked at her and she said, she's fully dilated. There's nothing we can do. We're going to have to take the babies. And the best chance for them to survive is take them C-section. And even then, they only have a 10% chance of survival. Now, today, kids that are born at that age have a 90% survival rate. But back then, it was a 10% survival rate. And so Aaron and Robbie were born. Aaron was 1 pound 15 ounces. Robbie was 2 pounds 2 ounces. The nurses told us, Robbie probably won't live through the night. And I remember I got home that night, and I got to about 2 o'clock in the morning. I was really struggling with this. I said, Lord, you're going to have to help me. And the first and first Samuel came to me where Jesus, or where David, David and Bathsheba had a son, but that son, who was told by Nathan, was going to die as a consequence of David and Bathsheba's sin. And David fasted and prayed for his son to recover. And then he saw the servants talking and whispering to each other. He said, the child is dead, isn't he? They said, yes. They were afraid to tell David because they were afraid of what was going to happen then. But you know what? David got up and he washed himself and he ate and they said, why did, why, why were you, why were you fasting when the child was sick? And now that the child has died, you're eating and you're being normal. He said, look, my son isn't going to be able to come back to me, but I'm going to go be with my son someday. I read that passage and God just comforted my heart with that. I came back the next morning and the nurses said, we thought he was going to die during the night, so we baptized him. I hope you don't mind. Well, it made his head wet. 
He passed after eight days. Aaron lived for five weeks and two days and had three major surgeries during that time. And there was finally a point where they said, there's absolutely nothing else that we can do. And so we lost her. We had a friend that owned a camper. He said, look, why don't you take the camper and why don't you guys go off for a week? You guys need a little break here. So we drove up to a campground in Wisconsin, parked that camper there for a week, and I remember sitting at the table in the camper, and we were talking. We said, what are we going to do about this? He said, you know, we want their lives to count for something for Jesus Christ. And the only way that's going to happen is if we get better. We need to get stronger. We can't get bitter. If we get bitter, their lives will have no fruit. But if we get better, their lives can make a difference for Christ for all eternity. And so we determined in our hearts, Lord, help us so we don't ever get bitter, but we get better instead. And we grew from it. God used that in my life many times. He used that to help prepare me for ministry. You know, when I started pastoring that church, four weeks after I started pastoring that church, I had a 29-year-old mom who died of cancer, single mom, with a young son. I knew what the pain of death was like. I had felt the ache in my chest that felt like it was never going to go away. And God used that to help me be able to reach out. Because we're told in 2 Corinthians, comfort those who need comfort with the same comfort you've been comforted with. And we understood that. As we live the Christian life, God wants us to lay down our lives for others. God wants us to be able to bear fruit. You know, I think it's fascinating. The Gospel of John is called God's Love Letter to the World. And in it, the word believe or believeth shows up, I think it's 93 times. But whenever I have somebody that trusts Christ or is close to it, I'll say, listen, don't just take my word for it. Read the Gospel of John and underline the word believe or believeth every time you say it. Don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. And I just tell them, you're going to find it over 50, way over 50 times. Because, but if you read the first John in five chapters, it tells you how to live the Christian life. The Gospel of John tells you how to become a, a Christian by believing. The God, first John tells you how to live. And you'll find the word love or loveth. 24 times in five chapters. Jesus said, love as I have loved you. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, wrote this. And he tells us the words of the Gentiles. See, said they, how they love one another and are ready to lay down their lives for each other. That's what the early church was like. John wrote in 1 John 4, verse 9, in this was manifested the love of God toward us because God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Here in his love, 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. 1 John 4, verse 17 says, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Have you ever had it where you were afraid to witness to somebody because you were afraid of what they were going to think of you? The Bible says perfect love casts out fear. I love Christ so much it doesn't make any difference what somebody else thinks of me. I'm going to love them so much I want them to hear the message of salvation as well. You know, when you share the message of salvation with people because you love them, it's way different than sharing the message of salvation because, well, I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to witness to people. You know, that's not the whole attitude. God wants us to come at it loving one another and loving others. You've heard the old statement. More fries are attracted by honey than vinegar. Now, when I'm at home, I drink a teaspoon of apple or a tablespoon of apple cider vinegar in my last first glass of water every day. I don't even like the taste. But they say it's supposed to be good for you. <laughs> Yuck. But I do it because it is. I have tendencies to become dehydrated. I drink that first glass of water, and it's so bad I have to drink a second one to get the taste out of my mouth. And I start out my day with two glasses of water, and my incidence of dizzy spells from being dehydrated are almost nothing now. Because of that awful-tasting apple cider vinegar. More than anything else, it's the love of God that's going to make us share the love of Christ with those that are around us. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He's a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. There's no blood clot on the cross. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. His death satisfies the wrath of God against sin. And it's capable of doing it for every person, and it does it for every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. I had a man tell me a while back, he said, well, I have to do my part and God does his part. I said, yeah, you do the sinning, God does the saving. (laughs) He said, well, you're right. (laughs) But that's really true. The moment you tell God, I have to do my part, Jesus isn't enough, you've just told him that he's a liar and that Christ's death was not the satisfaction, didn't satisfy his wrath against sin for the whole world. You don't want to stand in front of God someday and say, God, you're a liar. I have to do my part. Yes, you do. You do the sinning. And then put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The moment you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, God gives you the gift of eternal life. 
You say, how do I know if somebody really trusted Christ or not when I shared the gospel with them? You may never know. But God knows the moment a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, there is no mistake on God's part. He knows. And the moment they trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, God justifies them by their faith. He declares them righteous on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for them on the cross of Calvary. Well, you know, I don't want to pitch the ball because I'm afraid somebody's going to hit a home run. Really? Hey, share the gospel with people so people can have an opportunity to put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's the greatest thing that you can possibly do for them. Somebody accused me of being too outspoken in witnessing. I was talking to my grandson. This was when he was 17 years old. I said, buddy, somebody's criticizing me because they say I'm too aggressive in witnessing. I said, I just look at it this way. If God loved the world enough to die and pay for their sins, I ought to at least love them enough to tell them about it. He said, Papa, that makes sense. It thrilled my heart because one day as we're driving home from school, he said, Papa, he said, I know all your witnessing pickup lines. (laughs) And he does. He's used them on his friends. But it's an awesome thing. You know, he went on a summer mission trip in North Dakota. He came back and he said, Papa, I think I led two Indian kids to Christ on the playground. And you know, he's in the gym playing basketball with a guy from India who's a Hindu. And he's sharing the gospel with the Christ, with the guy. And the guy says, well, I'm Hindu. And he said, well, I don't know anything about Hinduism. He said, but I'm willing to find answers for you. You know, good kid. Thank God. Ask God to give you a love for Jesus Christ and a love for other people that you will love them so much you can't stand the thought of them dying and going to hell. Would you be willing to do that? Father, we know there's no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that every person here today would understand that Their salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone, that he paid the total sin debt by shedding his blood on the cross of Calvary. And Father, thank you that the moment we trust you as our Savior, you give us eternal life and we shall never perish. Father, I just ask for each of us here that you'd challenge our hearts, that each of us here would love you and love those around us so much we can't stand the thought of them dying and going to hell. Lord, give us a love for people so that we share Christ because of our love, our love for you, and our love for them. I ask, Lord, that we would learn to love like you love and lay down your life for us and that we'd be willing to lay down our lives for you 
In Jesus' name we pray. We hope God has encouraged you with today's message. Thank you for joining us at the Edgemont Bible Church. We'd love to have you visit us if you're ever in the area. For directions, more information, or to support the ministry of Edgemont Bible Church, please go to our website at edgemontbiblechurch.org. That's edgemontbiblechurch, all one word, dot org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Edgemont Bible Church, where the Sunday morning message is broadcast live.